I see what I say. The Green Notebook, carried by military leaders around the world. Within those pages are sweat, tears, triumphs, and the hard-won lessons of life. Lessons worth sharing. Each week, the team dives into the notebooks of military leaders, business professionals, authors, athletes and coaches, and entertainers to share lessons and help you lead with the best version of yourself. Hey, it's Joe here, and every morning before I crack open a book or sit down to do some writing, the first thing I do is brew an amazing cup of Alpha Coffee. They make premium 100% Arabica coffee, and Alpha has some of my favorite blends. They have Dawn Patrol, which is a nice medium light breakfast blend. I also enjoy Charlie Don't Surf, which is a medium Kona blend. And I even get to take Alpha Coffee to work with me because they also make K-Cups. Not only do they have great coffee... They're a great veteran-owned business who has shipped over 20,000 bags of coffee to deploy troops. They also offer a 10% discount to members of the military and first responders. And Alpha Coffee has been an awesome company to partner with at From the Green Notebook. So taste the Alpha difference and purchase their coffee today at www.alpha.coffee or via Amazon Prime. Welcome to another episode of From the Green Notebook. I'm your host, Joe Byerly. And this week, we're diving into the green notebook of retired Marine Colonel Tom Gordon. Colonel Gordon is currently the Commandant of Cadets at the Citadel and is the author of Marine Maxims, Turning Leadership Principles into Practice. In this interview, we do exactly that. We talk about how leaders can put concepts like taking care of people and recognizing excellence into practice, into their daily routines. And trust me when I say that this episode is full of of a lot of useful advice. So please get out your green notebooks and welcome to the show, Colonel Tom Gordon. Hey, Joe, I'm honored to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, sir, thanks for, thanks for again, taking time out of your schedule. I know you're extremely busy as the Commandant of Cadets at the Citadel. And before we dive into uh, to your new book, Marine Maxims, Turning Leadership Principles into Practice, uh, could you give listeners just a, a brief overview of, uh, of your background in the Marine Corps? Hey, thanks, Joe. Well, I just retired this past June, 30 years in the Marine Corps. So as you know, they take you up back and shoot you when it's all done. I just happened to wake up in Valhalla, and it looks an awful lot like Charleston, South Carolina, and the Citadel. So life's looking pretty good right now in this next chapter. Um, as far as my Marine Corps career goes, I was a tanker. Did not many of us left in the Marine Corps. That uh, shooting star we saw turned out to be a meteor that came down and wiped out our whole species. But um, Hopefully we won't pick at that scab too much over the podcast, but I know you probably will. As will, far as my, I, <laughs> I know you will. As far as my command assignments go, uh, my first command was down at Paris Island. Learned a tremendous amount. I'd like to say I learned how to be a tanker in the fleet, but I learned how to be an officer down at Paris Island. Got to do additional company command up at Camp Lejeune, but my battalion command was out at First Tank Battalion. Best job I ever had out there in 29 Palms. Had the opportunity to uh, command an engineering battalion for a little bit, a combat engineering battalion. I uh, was a special purpose MAGTAF CO. And then my 06 command was was the MHG, which is now the MIG. So I was the last MHG commander. We transitioned 
that unit into the MIG, which I think is very similar to your multi-domain task force right now. It was uh, five battalions, 4,000 Marines, and try to posture us to make sure that we could compete against peer adversaries in the information domain. If I wasn't in command, I was a three. So that's pretty much my whole career is I just kind of rotated between command assignments and being an OPSO someplace. I was an OPSO from uh, the battalion all the way up to the component level. Finished as a colonel, I was the Marsan G3. So doing Title 10 stuff for all the Marine forces in uh, in the Middle East. For PME, I did kind of a path least traveled. Instead of going to War College, I went to MIT. So Gordon at MIT was the punchline of many a straight line, but it was an incredible opportunity. And then as a post-command colonel, I got to do some, some really unique and rewarding things. I spent a year on the Council on Foreign Relations up in New York City. Absolutely amazing experience. Paid for it back in spades as the MILSEC, kind of like the XO chief of staff for the Commandant of the Marine Corps, the 37th Commandant, General Neller, was with him for the majority of his tenure. And then for my last two years uh, in the Marine Corps, I was the director of the Marine Corps Command and Staff College up there in Quantico. It was a great last lap. Couldn't imagine anything more rewarding than being able to work with and train, coach, and mentor the future battalion and squadron commanders of the Joint Force. Sir, that's an amazing career. And um, this is audio only, but if you could just see the video, you know, he's amassed a huge collection of books over the course of his career. And I've got like a weird like carnival skill where I can kind of see what books are. So I see uh, Chernow's Grant on the top shelf. Michael Lewis is the Undoing Project. Two rows down, I see uh, looks like Peter Perret's uh, edition of On War, Clausewitz. So if uh, this army thing doesn't work out, maybe I can... I can get a gig like looking at bookshelves uh, <laughs> from afar. But but speaking of books, uh, I apologize to listeners for geeking out for a second. But speaking of books, you know, you just published again Marine Maxims: Turning Leadership Principles into Practice. And for the last couple of weeks, all the leaders that I've been bumping into who are preparing for battalion and brigade command, I've actually been recommending your book to them because it, you know there's a lot of great leadership books out there that, uh, you know, talk about the theory of leadership or aspirational leadership, but this is like rubber meets the road leadership, you know, the entire book, the 50 maxims. And so I'd like to, could we talk a little bit about the the book and dive into some of your maxims? Sure. I would love to, but can, hey, can we get the copyright stuff squared away? Because, you know, for your listeners out there, you know, you and I got some friction there, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> you have to tell that, tell that story, sir. Okay. All right. So how I actually wrote the book, kind of the, the genesis behind it was, I actually started writing it when I was a young second lieutenant. And I was walking around with one of those five by eight ubiquitous green notebooks that we get. Trademark. Like, trademark. Go ahead. Trademark. I know. Trademark. And, you know, it, it became my leadership journal. And so whenever I worked in close proximity and close proximity to a leader I really respected, whatever anecdote it was that drew my attention, I just journaled it. And said, you know, if I'm ever in command, I'm going to do that. Now, it wasn't all unicorns and rainbows, right? I did work for my fair share of Martinets. And if I were ever working for a tool, I just flipped the book around on the back and then wrote, you know, if I'm ever in command, I'm never going to do that. Well, after the 20 years or so, the front of the book met the back of the book. And I thought I had something there. So I turned that outline into a series of PMEs with my lieutenants. And then I had the opportunity on the council of foreign relations to do some writing. And I figured, you know what, I'm going to turn this into a manuscript. And what better title? What better name? What could be more genuine than, than the green notebook? And I was all excited about it until a, a good friend of mine 
you know, uh, Christopher just called me up and said, uh, "Hey, buddy, that's that's trademarked. That's uh, that's already been taken." Yeah, so that's a that's a great great segue into the difference between tankers and scouts. Uh, scouts, <laughs> scouts, get to the objective first, sir. Um, no, yeah, I'm glad I'm glad I got there first. Like this uh, this green notebook thing's been pretty good to me. But your book is like again, like you can tell that it's an entire career's worth of of lessons. Again, not just things that a lot of people. They, they go and they sit in cabins somewhere in the woods and, and write aspirational books about leadership. Like you can tell that these are things that are tried and true that have served you well over the course of your career. Well, I try to make it as practical as possible. So the maxims are irreducible minimums, if you will. They're, they're not really, there's no quick solutions in there. There's no fixed formulas. Because of course, we both know that's not leadership. As I like to say, Leadership's easy. Being a leader is hard. So what I wanted to do was kind of give a professional development plan, you know, to a future lieutenant or also a future battalion commander. And that's kind of my target audience, depending on which chapter you're reading at which point in your career. There's something in it, I think, for everybody. These are, again, they're not mine. Right. These are things that I picked up with some great leaders. But when I reduced them down to, as I said, those irreducible minimums, I try to then build them back up and make it practical and give the reader some additional things to think about. Much like you, you know, I, I have a big bookcase and I find my next book from the work side of the bibliography of the last book I read. So with these maxims, I try to give each of the readers some additional reading. If they want some additional information about this, I'll give them some um, some resources that they may want to consider. Yeah, and that's what I really liked about the book. Again, broken down into 50 maxims. Each chapter is probably like anywhere from like two to, to five pages long. So so really easy for, uh, you know, for folks to get through. And then at the end of it is a recommended reading list for that maximum. So if it's an area where you're like, I want to dive deeper on, you provide additional resources, books, podcasts, and articles for. And so the first maximum is what you lead off with, which is to know thyself, which is funny, again, because the first book that I wrote, my, or that co-authored, My Green Notebook, is uh, Know Thyself Before Changing Jobs is the, the subtext on it. So apparently we're reading a lot of the same books. But how, <laughs> how important is it for leaders to know themselves before stepping into that position? Well, I think it's absolutely essential, right? How can you possibly manage the emotions and moods of others if you're not in tune with your own? But it's... As you write in your book and I write in mine, it's probably one of the most difficult things to do, right? That introspective self-study. I mean, how do you do it? Actually, I think you did it brilliantly in your book. Um, I really like how you laid it out so that folks can you know, provide some structure to that. Me personally, how I laid it out, much like you, I kind of went back to some of the, to the ancient Greeks, a little bit of philosophy in there. The really the only philosophical stuff in the book is, is really in that first one, right? Know thyself. Everything else is, is very practical going forward. But I did try to make even this philosophical metacognition, right? Thinking about thinking practical. So I, I borrowed a couple of things from Maxwell. There's a way that you can actually assess and measure your degree of self-awareness, a little technique that he came up with, a self-test. But one of my favorite ones that I employed quite a bit when I was the director at Man at Staff College was something I lifted from General Zinni. So all of my students, when they reported to the Command at Staff College, had to write a, a one-page essay for my first director's leadership session. And the writing prompt was pretty simple. It was just, who are you? And, you know, they all showed up for that first um, leadership talk with me, and they all brought it, and I made everyone pull it out, and they thought they were going to turn it in. 
But instead of turning it in, I had them flip it over and I gave them a second writing prompt. And what they were supposed to do that night was go back and answer the writing prompt, who am I? Now, the audience for that paper was themselves. I expected them to go home that evening and do some introspection, right? To think about now that they've identified who their, their ideal self was, now they needed to identify who their actual self was. And then from that, that delta, they were to create a personal development plan on how they were to close those two things, right? How do you close the gap between your ideal self? Who do you tell people you are? Who you believe you actually are? Well, that's knowing thyself. Much like you, I wanted to give them a couple of tools to actually peel that onion back a little bit. I think it's so, so valuable. You know, as, as again, as I look back on my career, I thought I knew myself throughout the, the period of time that I was coming up, but I wasn't doing any reflecting and doing that deliberate reflection. That's when I really started getting to, uh, to know myself. And I love, again, I love that that's how you start the book off because, you know, of all the, a lot of the folks that I've interviewed for the podcast, you know, they say that there is nothing more you than leading. Like that is completely you, you know? And so knowing who you are, knowing your strengths and weaknesses, and you even have a quote in that chapter from Rick Warren that is humility is not denying your strengths, but being honest about your weaknesses. And, uh, I just think that's so beneficial for leaders because it's about, you know, bringing people in and complimenting those weaknesses. So it's, you know, the strength of the team. I, on my interview with General Howe, he said, you know, it's not about being a great player. It's about being the player that makes the team great. You know, so here I am now at the Citadel right now, and my mission is to educate and develop principal leaders. So I'm trying to prepare future second lieutenants and ensigns to go to the operating forces. And, you know, I hear it all the time, but we give the absolute worst advice to junior officers. Probably it's cliche, right? They tell them to be themselves. Could you imagine anything more hollow than to tell a second lieutenant to be himself? They have no idea who they are at that point in their career. I like how you structured your book so that they can actually journal. And that's kind of how Marine Maxims came around is because you think about it, I mean, it's our leadership, right? But we're a tapestry of different things that we've picked up from other great leaders around us. And they're in such a formative stage when they're a cadet here at the Citadel or for the first couple of years as a second lieutenant, as a platoon leader, as a platoon commander, they're picking up pieces and they're showing it into their own personal leadership tapestry. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? That's what we're all supposed to do. And at this point in their career, since they don't have a mentor, most of the best mentors, as you and I can both attest, are probably on their bookshelf. That's absolutely right. And I think, you know, for me, I look back, yes, I've gotten mentorship from some great leaders along the way. And then kind of like you, seeing those bad examples and writing those down, I mean, like, I will never do that. But, you know, pulling the, the leadership concepts, there's a great quote from, uh, from the Stoic philosopher Seneca. I'm geeking out for a minute, so you have to bear with me. But, you know, he talked about, <laughs> in one of his essays, he said, there's a place where you can go to find mentorship 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and it's in a library. And he's like, the dead will always have time for you by studying them. And so, you know, speaking of time, you know, what do you say to people who struggle with time? They say, I don't have time for professional development. I don't have time to write these thoughts or these ideas down in my, my green notebook. Well, you don't find time, you make it, right? I believe as a commander, you should be scheduling your values because that's a great way to communicate to your staff and your subordinate commanders what you think is important. So 
with my schedule, be it on Outlook, whatever, I always shared my calendar with my staff and I shared my calendar with my commanders. I wanted them to know what I was doing and where I was focusing my energy. And I had no problem whatsoever putting personal professional development time on my calendar. If I was doing professional reading and I wasn't going to be disturbed for an hour, I wanted them to know that, right? People do what people see. And if the boss can, can take time and block it off for professional development, well, then they can take time and block it off for professional development. I like to say the, the best things happen in the margin. And what I mean by that is as a commander, you can easily lose control of your schedule. You think you're in charge, but next thing you know, you find your schedule, you're going from meeting to meeting to meeting, and you have no time for reflection. You have no time for critical thinking, and you're just reacting at that point. So you have to build in that margin into your schedule, and you have to hold it and defend it religiously. Um, when I was the Millsec for the Commandant, General Neller was pretty good about that. You know, as crazy busy as one of the Joint Chiefs schedules, you know, could be, he always made sure that we blocked off, and you know, I would enforce discipline into his schedule to make sure that he had time for for personal reflection. The issues that he were so weighty that um, the, the Marine and the Marine Corps deserve nothing better than to have his full focus and attention on those issues. Yeah, and that's Maxim 24 in your book is don't allow the urgent to displace the important. And, and you say, you say, margins create opportunities to seize opportunities. The biggest barrier to both a successful command and a meaningful life is overcommitment. And, you know, I think about talking to General Votel on the podcast. He talked about how he would deliberately schedule time to what he called like chew the fat with subordinates to just kick ideas around just so he could think through things. And then, you know, because I have to use Marine examples in this episode, thinking back to an essay I read uh, by uh, Lieutenant General Paul Van Riper called A Marine's Take on History. And in that essay, he laid out his entire career and what professional development books he had read over the course of his career from E6 to Three Star. And uh, I remember him saying that when he was a division commander, he would actually put reading time on his schedule so everybody could see it. Because again, in the book, you talk about, it doesn't matter what we say, it's what our, it's in our schedule, it's what we do that signals what's, what's of value to us. And so he was showing everybody in the division that the division commander was taking time out of his day to read because it was that important to him. Of course, yes. General Van Riper coined the term the 5,000-year-old mind. Now, many other people have paraphrased that, but uh, I, I think now, there is a man who's capable of an original thought. You know, I remember I was flying out looking for my first house at uh, Fort Lewis, Washington in 2005. And I just picked up a, a random book at the airport that looked interesting. And it, it was Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. And I remember the chapter on Van Riper, how it talked about the Millennium Challenge in 2002, how he was the op- opposing force commander. You know, he had that 5,000-year-old mind going into the exercise and for those who aren't familiar with it, it was the joint force versus a Middle Eastern country that was taken over by a rogue dictator. And Van Riper ran circles around the, the joint staff using tactics, methods, and approaches that you know went all the way back in history to just create confusion. And so I read that and that really had a profound, I guess it planted a seed. It took a while to grow because I was busy drinking and playing Xbox. But at some point, I needed to read as a leader to develop that intuition that Van Riper had. Sure. So all those veterans out there of, uh, of OIF, right, the March Up. Well, of course, uh, we weren't the original March Up. You know, Zynafen, Anabas, right, the, the original March Up. That's a great point. Though I, I remember even a year ago, I read Xenophon's uh, 
not the Anubis, but the education of Cyrus, Cyropedia. And it talks about all the things that Cyrus did to train his army up. And it's funny because you see some of the things that you talk about Marine Maxims are some of the same things that Cyrus did. Just, you know, different place, different location, slightly different tactic, but it, it was the same, same way to lead and inspire a, a culture. So speaking of culture, I, I have a whole section of questions here because you, you dive into that a lot in the book. So one of the things that you have is, is uh, it's in Maxim 3, is about letting Marines know that you care. So how did you as a commander let your Marines know that you cared about them? Hey, thanks, Joe. Yes, uh, again, I'm paraphrasing Teddy Roosevelt right there, right? I say, Marines don't care how much they know, but they'll know how much you care. It's not rocket science, but I'll tell you, it's something just as simple as knowing a person's name, right? Nothing sounds so sweet to a man than the sound of his own name. Now, that can be a challenge, right? Especially when you're an 06 commander. So when I was uh, the group commander there, I had 4,400 Marines, but I also had 74 captains. I guess in the Army, it would be I was a senior raider for, for 74 captains. So how do you get to know 74 captains so that you could properly evaluate them? Well, it starts off with something as simple as their name, right? So I... In group command, I still walked around with my analog brain, right? That, that five by eight green notebook. And in the back of the book, I made sure that every unit I was in command of, I had, I broke it down. I had their first names, all my direct reports, and then all of their direct reports, their first names, their wives' names. So for instance, if I'm going into radio battalion, I would open it up and I'd make sure I knew all the lieutenant's first names when I went in there. So I go in there and I bump into, you know, second lieutenant Beverly and I'm like, Hey, Joe, how are we doing? The boss knows my name. Wow. Right. What am I communicating? And I'm communicating that I give a crap. When I was the director of the command and staff college, I had 213 students. And for three weeks before school kicked off every year, I would sit there with a face chart and memorize every single one of those young majors and lieutenant commanders first names. Again, you're just communicating to them that you actually give a crap about them. I said on my BlackBerry back then, you know, now, now my iPhone, uh, a reminder of when their birthday was. Something as simple as this going up there, and that would actually drive my schedule of where I was going to go. I would, if one of my commander's birthday, well, you could pretty much guarantee that I was going to be in his area, her area that day, so I could go and personally wish them a happy birthday. It's not a big thing. It's, it's the little things. Just communicating that you give a crap. I like to say, if you have a Marine, if you have a soldier who's busting their ass, you know how to make them stop? It's real easy. All you have to do is nothing, right? Why should I bust my ass if no one's going to notice? Now, they'll never tell you that's the reason why they're busting their ass, but just go ahead and not recognize them. Just go ahead and not recognize their performance and see what happens. So let's talk about recognizing people, telling them they're doing a great job. I'd love for you to share the story of your 39-cent bombs. I thought that was super low-tech, and it's super, like, super easy. All right. The letter bomb. Yes. Yes. So people ask me, well, what was the most useful tool you had in command? And I always say the 39 cent stamp. So my letter bombs were pretty simple. Again, so if I'm out there touring the area doing battlefield circulation, whatever, and I come across Byerly and Byerly's busting his ass down there in motor transport, right? So he's down there, you know, turning wrenches or whatever he was doing that drew my attention. I just take a couple of minutes and I put down his name in my book and get back to the battalion CP that evening. And I would have my adjutant pull the red on Byerly. Why did I want the red, the record of emergency data? Of course, because 
his parents' name and address is going to be there. And I just take a couple of minutes and pen a note to them saying, yeah, dear Mr. and Mrs. Barley, I just want to tell you how incredibly impressed I am with your son, Joe, and all the wonderful things he's doing for the command of the Marine Corps. And I just put a couple anecdotes in there to personalize the letter. And with this letter, you know, please accept my gratitude for your support, because I knew Joe would not be as, uh, as effective as he is without your continued support or words to that effect. It took me about five minutes to write the letter. I called it a letter bomb because it had a 96-hour fuse on it. Snail mail takes about 48 hours for that letter to get up wherever it was going. It would take another 24 hours for Joe's dad, you know, to pick up the phone and give him a call and let him know that he just got a letter from the battalion commander. Then the sergeant major and I would always set a calendar reminder on our phones to go back and check on Barley four days later. Why four days? Well, snail mail, right? So it took 48 hours for the letter to get it wherever it was going. It would take another 24 hours for Joe's dad to give him a call and let him know that the battalion commander had sent him a letter, right? Then on that fourth day, we would go back and we would just return to the scene of the crime, if you will. Wherever, whatever Byerly was doing, you know, four days ago, he is now doing it, you know, 10 times better, 10 times quicker. And what did it cost us, right? Well, I tell everybody it cost us a 39 cent stamp, but to be totally candid, I actually never paid for a stamp. I always considered it official mail and I just ran it through the meter. So it just took a couple of minutes. Why was it so effective? Well, there's a reason why, why I joined the Marine Corps, why you joined the Army, um, and there's a whole host of reasons. But one of those reasons was because we were probably really wanted to make somebody proud. So all we did with that letter bomb was just connect the performance with some intrinsic motivation behind it. Here you are, you're out there, you're busting your ass, you're trying to do well, right? Because you're trying to make somebody proud. And all we did was just connect those two things. And it was magical just to watch it. I appreciate, sir, how you talk about, you know, taking time to write something down. There's been a couple of times throughout my career where a commander on, you know, unit stationary just took a, a few minutes to write me a note to say thanks, you know, say, hey, like you did a great job at this or whatever. And especially like it happened when I was a second lieutenant. I was a second lieutenant 18 years ago, but I still have that note. You know, I, I've lost the attaboy emails over the years, you know, like like awards that like, that's great. But like, there's something about a handwritten note that I think just has a major impact because it's not something you see anymore. I had one father of a battalion commander. I was invited to a change of command. I went back. It was a Brain, who obviously had worked for me before, he was a recipient of a one of my letter bombs, and his father grabbed me afterwards, and he was so excited that we had finally met, and he made me wait, and he went back to his car, and he came back out, and he had that letter bomb, that that little index card on that unit stationary that I wrote. He had framed it, he had actually framed it, and he had brought it to the chain of command, hoping that we would meet. That's amazing. There's a great, I don't know if you've seen it, sir, it's a great Gatorade commercial with Peyton Manning. Have you heard of how Peyton Manning would write letters? Have you heard about this? I have not. So Peyton, when he grew up, his mom would make him sit down and write thank you notes to people. And so it was just a thing that he developed over time. So there's this Gatorade commercial of players from his team, people that he played against, and even his coaches reading handwritten notes that Peyton Manning had sent them throughout his career because he, he was always doing that. And it was like even the players in the NFL he was playing against was reading a note, you know, just saying, hey, I really appreciated your hustle in that game and, and all that. And so it was just awesome to see this, this group of people that, again, held on to those 
handwritten notes because again, it's not a huge, you know, sweeping program. It's not a new piece of technology. It's like the oldest technology around that we can do to just say thank you to someone. Hey folks, it's Joe here, and I would like to thank our newest sponsor, my alma mater, the University of North Georgia, located in Dahlonega, Georgia, home of the Mountain Phaser Ranger School. If you are looking for an education, this is a place to go. They are a top-rated senior military college offering over 70 degrees, including critical languages, international affairs, strategic studies, and an award-winning cyber defense program. Their Corps of Cadets is an Army-only program with 24-7 leader development. They have consistently been ranked as our nation's number one Army ROTC program among senior military colleges, and this is the institution that I credit with preparing me to be an Army officer. So, if you want to learn more, go to their website at www.go.ung.edu forward slash Army One and learn more about the University of North Georgia, the Military College of Georgia. Now, back to the episode. Something that I also want to touch on in your comments is that you said that you and your Sergeant Major would set reminders, calendar reminders on your phone. So like, how important was the routine of what you did of of finding these Marines and, and thanking them when they were doing something good? My basic daily routine, the BDR. So it was actually in my command philosophy. My command philosophy was pretty simple, right? It was just one line, do right and fear no man. But I've tried to operationalize it with the five things that I did as a commander every single day. And that BDR was supposed to be pushed down so that every commander, every NCO and above, were supposed to do the same five things every day. And they're pretty simple. The first thing that you were supposed to do is find a problem and fix it. The second thing you were supposed to do was to find a Marine or a sailor doing a good job and thank them. You're supposed to teach somebody something. You're supposed to learn something and you're supposed to ask how you could help. And the methodology was, again, pretty simple. But the vision, you know, was pretty grand. Just think about it. What your unit would look like if every NCO and above did those five things every single day. Think about what your command would look like in six weeks. Think about what your command would look like in six months, trying to be intentionally grateful and positive, but at the same time, providing some structure to make sure that leaders can actually break laptop defilade, get out there, find the Marines, find the soldiers, find the sailors that are doing a good job, teaching them something in the process, and then you know, asking how they can help, I think really will help define and shape your culture or your command climate. Yeah, I'd like to dive in on two of those. So find a Marine doing a good job and thank him. Again, this is in the book, Doing Routines Routinely. That first one, how did that shape, like when you would walk down to the motor pool or to the company area, like how did that shape what you were looking for? Since all the Marines knew that those were my five things that I did every day. um, (laughs) But before I answer your question, I'll tell you, the most important troop leading step of a course is supervision, right? So how did I supervise this to make sure that uh, these five things were happening every day with all the leaders? Well, quite frankly, I just catch them at the end of the day and ask for a back brief. I would love catching lieutenants walking out to get their car. And I'm like, hey, Byerly, give me a read back on your day, right? They knew I was looking for those five things. You know, I'm like, what problem did you fix? What soldier was doing a good job? What did you teach? What did you learn? And how did you help? 
it, you know, sometimes there'll be some awkward conversations with the old man, right? They start rolling the rock underneath their foot and like, well, you know, sir, I'm like, no, I don't. Because if we know <laughs> we're event driven around here, not time driven. So uh, you got a couple of things that you got to catch up on before you can secure for the day, you know, turn them around, send them back into the CP. Now, at that point, you know, there were probably plenty of problems that they could find and fix because the only Marines left in the CP at that time were the Marines doing EPD. So since the Marines knew that that was my modus operandi, if you would, I would walk into an area if I was doing an inspection or if it was just a command visit, I go in there. I'm like, all right, you know, the five things I'm, I do every day and I'll tell you, I'm going to do them all on this visit right now. So what do I need to fix? You know, who's doing a good job? What can we teach here? What do I need to learn? And then how can I help? It was just a great way to do an inspection. So for instance, if I was inspecting a tank and you were one of my tank commanders, I'd look for a problem because of course, they know you can't do an inspection without finding something wrong or you're not doing it right. Anyone should be able to find a problem or an infraction when they're doing an inspection. But that's of course not the purpose of the inspection. The purpose of the inspection, of course, is to catch Marines doing a good job and thanking them, right? So I'd then intentionally look for something that was right so I can you know, I could thank them and reward them for it. But I had a Socratic way of leading. So I just asked a lot of questions. And the way I would pose those questions was the Marines wouldn't know whether or not I was asking out of my intellectual curiosity or because I genuinely didn't know, or I was asking to see if they knew. And it was just a great way to figure out which of your NCOs, which of your junior officers, one, knew their trade, knew their operating system, right? Who would be candid with you and who would try to BS you? And then finally, you know, how can you help? Well, again, I was trying to be deliberate with that. And by helping, I didn't mean doing their job for them. But by helping, I meant how do I take, you know, these eagles, right, and apply them to whatever friction point that you're having that's impeding your mission, your ability to get the job done. Can I stop you right there? Like at first when I read this, find a problem and fix it. You know, in my head, I'm thinking of like making an on-the-spot correction. But that's not what you're, you're talking about at all, is it? No, no, I'm, I'm trying to find those friction areas, right? Because again, I assume good intent. I assume that the Marines are trying to do a good job, but we all know how frustrating it can be in these Byzantine bureaucracies that are, quite frankly, a, a reflection of our both of our services at this point. You know, there are going to be things that are bogging them down, some regulation, some issue that they're having, be it supply chain management, whatever it is, you know, how can I actually take the weight of my office, right, over my rank and help them accomplish their mission? I really appreciated that. And it made me like start thinking about, you know, at every single level, we have like a power to fix something, whether it's a, a brand new platoon leader, a company commander, battalion commander, a brigade or regimental commander. And so, you know, just start using that, uh, like General Votel on the podcast used to talk about using your rank for good. And that's a great example of it is, is figuring out something that you can use to move mountains. And um, well, to that person, maybe moving a mountain, but to you, it's as, as simple as, as a signature. And, and uh, you know, just recently on the podcast, we interviewed Jennifer Moss, who wrote The Burnout Epidemic. And one of the stories she tells is about a hospital administrator that was, was walking around the hospital and there was this one copier that was broken that was just frustrating the heck out of the nurses on that floor. Like they were sometimes standing in line for 20, 30 minutes waiting on this broken, messed up copier. And, you know, they're, they're in a hurry, like time is of the essence, but they didn't have the power to, to fix it. And just by walking around, he was able to identify that, use his rank or what you'd say, like the eagles on your chest 
to do something about it. And it, and it just that simple act of using his power to do that was quickly able to free up a lot of stress and a lot of unnecessary issues that those nurses were having. And so I, I think that all of us at different levels in the organization have the ability to fix something using our rank and position to do that. And I, I appreciate that you made that your, your daily routine as a commander. Well, the most important thing that an 06 commander does is set the conditions for the battalion commander's success. That's it. Making sure that they're properly resourced and they have what they need, provide top cover where required, but most importantly, set the conditions for their success. And speaking of thanking Marines, one more thing that you wrote about is pin it where you win it. You got to, you have, you got to talk about that approach, sir. Well, you know, again, there's nothing new or novel, right? But it was, I don't know how it is in the army, but in the Marine Corps, in that Byzantine bureaucracy, our awards process is way too slow, even for unit awards within the command, right? So our Navy Achievement Medal, your Army Achievement Medal. Now this, I, I must profess to anyone reading this, that this is not in accordance with the Marine Corps 1650, right? But I would always make my Sergeant Major walk around with a, uh, with a Navy Achievement Medal in his cargo pocket. Now he hated this <laughs> because my Sergeant Major was an administrator. Uh, Renee Salinas, if uh, Sergeant Major Salinas retired, he's listening to this. He's probably rolling his eyes right now. He would always, <laughs> just lost you? a listener. We just lost a listener. We just lost a listener. But, you know, everyone walks around with those, uh, those coins, right? Everyone has their ubiquitous, you know, command coins. But what really, as Napoleon said, right, it's all about that, uh, that ribbon on the chest and what a man would do to, it, to earn it. But what I try to do is whatever that performance was, I, the primacy of proximity, right? It's so key, you know, not only in maneuver warfare, but also in an effective awards program. It would work just simply like this. So Byerly would be down on the tank ramp. We'd just be coming out of a long field op or we just come back off patrol and they're doing after ops maintenance. And I would try to recognize that Marine there on the spot. So the Sergeant Major and I would play it up a little bit. You know, I would say, who's doing a great job? Who needs to be recognized? They would point to Byerly. They'd tell me what he did. And I'd say, hey, hey, Sergeant Major. I'd put my hand out there and he'd throw me a coin and I'd look at it. I'm like, a coin for that? Did you hear what Byerly did? I said, we're going to recognize him with a coin. And I'm like, come on, Sergeant Major. And he'd say, sir, you know, you can't do that. And I'm like, I know I can't, but they're not going to fire me for it. So give it up. And he would reach in his pocket and take out the Navy Achievement Medal. And we'd make all the Marines stand at the position of attention. And I said, I don't have a citation. I don't even have a summary of action. Right. But I have your performance. And I'd pin it right there on his chest while he's hot, sweaty, dirty, nasty. And I'll tell you, the return on that was huge. Now, and then I would always pivot to whoever the lieutenant was, and I'd use that impromptu ceremony to pressurize the award system. Because, of course, we'd be in our service Charlies on Fridays, and I'd tell them, I'm like, hey, this guy's going to be walking around with an unauthorized uh, ribbon on Friday, so you better have that citation summary of action into our awards program. They would put that into the system, and I would have to have it approved to me by Friday. Or I'd just give them usually about 48 hours forever for the company commander to get that award into the system and up to me for approval. It just was a great way of, uh, of recognizing the Marines, but the primacy of proximity. Yeah, I just uh, a real quick advisory. Don't recommend any commanders not listen to their sergeant major. I just want to go ahead and, and put that disclaimer. Absolutely. And your yeah. lawyer. <laughs> also want to say YOLO. So as we, as we get down to uh, towards the end of this interview, 
You're at the Citadel right now as as the Commandant. Like you said, you were a, a graduate of the Citadel several decades ago. And in the book, you tell a story about culture. It was one of the first lessons you learned, and it came from the Citadel. And it was about a group that you had a command called the Casual Cats. And, and <laughs> I, I was wondering if you could just recount that story and just kind of talk about the lesson that you walked away from that experience with. Well, Joe, again, I appreciate it. And, uh, and, and thanks for the plug for the Citadel, because, you know, as a graduate of uh, North Georgia, I think we can both agree that the Citadel is the ultimate leadership lab. That will be edited out and I will use <laughs> AI technology to put in the words North Georgia, but please continue. <laughs> Absolutely. But we both are the product of some remarkable leadership labs. I, I, we have five battalions here and, uh, you know, I like to say that the core runs the core. So, I actually got to live that 30 years ago when I had, I'm putting air quotes right now. I know this is, this is a podcast without any video, but my first command was actually a cadet command here at the Citadel. I was the CEO of Charlie Company, and it was an amazing lesson for a future officer on command, climate, and culture. So I had the opportunity and the privilege to lead my peers here, and I got selected to command Charlie Company. Well, Charlie Company at that time had the reputation of being the worst company in the Corps. They called themselves the Casual Cats, and they took great pride in finishing last in everything that they did. You know, everything at the Citadel is a competition, and, you know, they rank them, and they announce the winner, and they would list it. Back then, there were only 16 companies. There's 21 now, but they would list them out, and whoever got first place in parade or whatever the intramural event was, they would cheer Whenever they got to 16th and it was Charlie Company, ironically enough, Charlie Company would cheer louder for finishing last than Echo Company did for finishing first. So that was the command culture I was coming into. Now, interestingly enough, going back to our first discussion, right, know thyself, what I witnessed my first three years at the school was the institution's response to Charlie Company. And what they did was they found whoever the most autocratic leader of the rising senior class, you know, that aspiring Martinet, and they put that individual in charge of Charlie Company. Well, as you can imagine, the introspection that uh, myself coming up on the command list for Charlie Company caused with me to actually think was, Jesus, this is what the institution thinks of me, but that's a different topic, uh, wasn't the question. What the question was though, is like, what did I do with Charlie Company? And what I realized, Assessing Charlie Company, the command that I was about to assume was, is that they were the most cohesive company in the Corps. And, you know, if you look at all the indications of leadership, discipline, proficiency, morale, esprit de corps is, I think, the most important, but it's the hardest to achieve. So really, my job was pretty simple because the hard work had already been done for me. As we both know, there's two different ways to create cohesion in an organization, right? You can have a common purpose or a common foe. The institution had provided Charlie Company with a common foe for three years. I was not going to you know, advance down that same axis. I figured we needed a different approach. So it gave me an opportunity to experiment as a 22-year-old right, on, on how do you change culture? How do you change climate? And I did it you know, by stumbling around and making mistakes, but I learned a lot. I was able to identify, hey, you know what? There's a lot of unofficial leaders in this company right, that are actually the center of gravity. I need to bring these folks along, right? If I can identify those unofficial leaders and I could bring them along, if I could, you know, co-opt them, well, then they will help me turn the ship from within. 
And that's just basically what I did. I kind of realigned some of the incentives. We don't have many incentives as a cadet. That's one thing I'm trying to do right now is to make sure that with these cadet leaders that are figuring out, trying to learn how to lead their peers, I want to make sure that they have a balanced portfolio, if you will. They have both, they have the carrots and they have the stick so they can actually reward their peers as well, because we just don't want it to be negative and toxic leadership, which, as we know, sometimes those can be the negative leadership lessons that a young 18, 19, 20 year old can take from one of our senior military colleges. It was just a great experiment for me. And, you know, I, I don't want to say I did it. Uh, I did it right. Um, but I certainly learned a tremendous amount from the experience. It's such a valuable lesson on culture. And I, and I, I think in the book, you even talk about it. Like you could have been one of those commanders that they went into the organization without learning it and just impaled yourself on it and been their common enemy. But you took the time to get to know the culture, to understand it. And then you shaped it. And I think that's, a, that's an important lesson. And that's also a theme that many of the leaders have, have, who've come on this podcast have, uh, have talked about. And I, I think that's an awesome lesson that you were able to learn before you commissioned as an officer in the Marine Corps. Well, I do remind the cadets all the time, whether they're going to go into service, if they're going to be commissioned, or if they're going to be a manager on the Amazon floor, right? It's a great opportunity to experiment with your leadership, to learn, kind of discover who you are, figure out what works, what doesn't work, and make those honest mistakes here. My job as the commandant is to underwrite the risk of well-intentioned failure, make sure no one gets hurt, make sure that the, uh, the negative effects of any failed leadership doesn't spill outside the gates, but to allow them to actually go and learn. We both read an awful lot about leadership, right? We both listen to podcasts. I love your podcast but nothing can take the place of practical application when it comes to developing future leaders. And that's what makes the Citadel unique. That's what makes North Georgia unique is give them the opportunity to lead their peers and, and mix it up a little bit and, and to fail. But to fail, and I hate to use the word safe space because it has you know different connotations, but to fail in this environment, right, where they can recover from it without having career implications or, you know, God forbid, on the operating forces get someone hurt or killed. Would you argue that, you know, like when I heard you say that, you could take Commandant of the Citadel out and insert, you know, Brigade Commander, Battalion Commander, like as long as like the failures aren't legal, moral or ethical or somebody gets injured, like you can still as a leader allow your your folks to fail through action. And and I don't know if it's even failure. It's just learning what not to do. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And the best way to learn, of course, is from the failures of others. Um, right, which, which will we'll bring it back to, for journaling. Just, yeah, to journaling, to studying history, to uh, learning, you know, just making time in your schedule to do all these things and to pick up your book, Marine Maxims. You know, you had uh, General Frank Donovan on the other day, and uh, I know General Donovan well served with him, I have the highest respect for him. But, you know, I, I liked his quote, even though it's bashing leadership books, which I'm an author of. He says he doesn't read leadership books, but he reads books on great leaders. Yeah, that's a that's a fascinating thing, and for me, like it's not just reading leadership books. Um, you know, s- similar to you, like it's you know Grant's biography, the the book that's up there. It's it's not a leadership book. It's just a book about Ulysses S. Grant. But like when you look at it through the lens of I want to be a better leader, I want to be a better person. There's so many great lessons that that you can pull out of the book. So I guess it's about how you approach reading to begin with. So, sir, as we uh, <laughs> as we wind down, I know that we're uh, 
we're getting short on time here. If anybody's interested in picking up a copy of of your book, where can they where can they find it? Hey, thanks, Joe. Well, if they're in the Naval Services and they're a member of the United States Naval Institute, they can get a great discount there at their webpage. But everyone else, um, it's on Amazon, it's Books a Million, Barnes Noble. I'm humbled by the, the the turnout so far. The book's on its third reprint since November, so I'm paying it forward. Yeah, and I, I highlighted the book. Uh, you know, each month I, I send out a recommended reading list of three to five books, and I highlighted it this month as like a good, what I call a good command textbook. It's perfect. It's uh, I think it's five by eight. It's the size of it. It's uh, it's red. It's not green. Um, and <laughs> yeah, it's just a, it's again, it, for, for those listening, I highly recommend this book. You know, I, I don't always do that with, with books written by military leaders. It's a weird bias I have, but this one I think is a very valuable resource that I know that I'm going to use moving forward in my career. Well, thanks, Joe. And I know you're going to pay it forward as well. So uh, I, I really appreciate the endorsement very much. I'm humbled by it, um, but I'm, I'm excited to see see these lessons that I picked up and able to pay them forward. Yeah. So, you know, get Marine Maxims, turning leadership principles into practice, and then uh, use it before you go into command. And then when you come out of command, pick up my green notebook, know thyself before changing jobs. And you got two good uh, hamburger buns on the meat of experience. <laughs> Sir, thank you so much for your time today. This was awesome. I had a lot of fun. Hey, thanks, Joe. Thank you again for listening to another episode of From the Green Notebook Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us five stars wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps us gain visibility and the opportunity to help more people on their leadership journey. Also, make sure you check out our website at www.fromthegreennotebook.com. There, you can listen to past episodes, read leadership articles written by military leaders from around the world. You can sign up for our monthly reading list email where you can learn about new books that are coming out. And our Sunday reflection email that comes out every Sunday morning is really short. It's a two-minute read, but I guarantee you it's going to start your week off on the right foot. Finally, make sure you follow us on Twitter at FTGN Notebook, and you can find us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for From the Green Notebook. Again, thank you so much for coming on this journey with us. I am humbled by the opportunity to learn these lessons alongside you. So please join us next week for another episode of From the Green Notebook, where we're going to help you lead with the best version of yourself. I came from the mud. There's dirt on my Shoot me down.